Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, guess what? I am a list maker. That's right. Shopping lists, packing lists, to-do lists, 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 lists. I have to be a list maker because if I don't, I'm going to forget things. I don't have one of those fancy brains that just tends to remember everything. No, I have one of those clunky brains that will inevitably forget things if I don't write them down or put them in my phone to remember later. Who's with me? Raise your hand if you too are a list maker. Yes, these are my people. And you know, Christmas tends to be, at least for me, a time for lists. Of course, there's the gift list. Who do I have to shop for this year? And the list of people getting invited to Christmas dinner. And the list of things to get done before Christmas. Perhaps that's our longest list. There's the shopping list for Christmas dinner. And if we're traveling for Christmas, then there's the packing list. Christmas just seems to be a time for lists. Well, this Christmas season, we're going to give pride of place to the reliable, the helpful, the just a little bit bossy list. And we're going to reflect on some of the important lists, perhaps, of Christmas. Now, we know that Christmas is not about our lists, and the, it's not, definitely not about the busyness that they represent during this time of year. Christmas, in fact, is about something much grander. 2,000 years ago, God made good on a long-standing promise to send the one who would redeem humanity, to send the one who would undo the effects of the fall, to send the one who would pay for the sin of others. What makes Christmas so spectacular is not just that God sent the person who would accomplish this, but that this person was the eternal Son of God. And this blows my mind every time I reflect on it. Catch how crazy this is. The one who has existed forever, without beginning or end, was born in a stable in Bethlehem. The all-powerful God of the universe, through whom all things were created, had to be cared for by human parents. The creator of all things took on the nature of his creation, displaying inestimable humility. God didn't just send someone to rescue us. He came himself. Perhaps this is best captured by an early Christian hymn that Paul includes in his letter to the church at Philippi. This is written in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Jesus humbled himself by taking on human flesh, a human nature. The creator became 
or at least took on creation ultimately so that he could die on our behalf. And this is what Christmas is all about. The incarnation of the Son of God. Over the years, the celebration of Christmas has morphed into many other things. Society has wholesale bought into the non-Jesus aspects of Christmas. And Christians often partake in many of the festivities of the larger uh, Christmas culture. But the difference between the church and the world is that for the Christian, the center of Christmas is Jesus Christ. Even when we give gifts to our loved ones, they echo the ultimate gift given to us by God in Jesus Christ. And so that leads me to our first Christmas list of this season, the gift list. You know, I make a gift list every year at Christmas time, and I do so for a number of reasons. A, I don't want to forget anyone that I should get a gift for. You know, we've all been there, right? Somebody gives us a gift and we're like, oh no, I forgot to get that person a gift. I don't want to be that guy. So number, letter A on my list, I don't want to forget anyone that I should get a gift for. B, I want my gifts to my kids, especially, to be balanced. So if one of my sons gets a bike and the other son gets a pair of socks, we are going to have some conflict in the house. And C, I love the feeling of having all the names on my list crossed off and enjoying that sense of accomplishment. So one of the reasons I love my Christmas list is not just so I don't forget anything, not just so I keep things balanced, but so that in the end I could feel accomplished as I crossed off every name on that list. Raise your hand if you make Christmas lists as well. That's right, I'm not the only one. Well, thank you for that validation. Well, I want to suggest to you that in sending Jesus to earth at the first Christmas, God the Father also had a gift list. No, I'm not saying that he had some names scribbled on a piece of paper or that he had them typed out on his notes app on his phone. God doesn't do that. But he certainly did have a specific, he he certainly did have specific people in mind when he sent Jesus. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Yeah, Kevin, the world, duh, just group everybody together. And while this is true in one sense, our Christmas passages, if you read them, if you pay attention, and in fact, the entire Bible have much more nuance than that. And so I would suggest to you that God's gift list had two names on it, Israel and the rest of the world. And so maybe this is something you knew coming in here today, or maybe this is something you've never considered before. But as we look at our primary passage for this morning, I encourage you to pay close attention to what is said. Who is this good news for? How would they have interpreted what was being said? And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open up with me to Luke chapter 1, and we are going to begin reading in verse 26. Luke 1, beginning in verse 26. And the text says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Isn't it interesting that the things we typically associate with Jesus' coming are nowhere mentioned in this passage. So here's just some of what I mean by that. The angel makes no mention of the fact that Jesus will die on a cross to take away the sins of the world. The angel doesn't claim that Jesus will make it possible for people to go to heaven when they die. Now, Jesus does go on to do these things, but as the angel Gabriel informs Mary about the coming of Jesus, he focuses on very different things entirely things that a Jewish person would have been just as amazed by as those other things, things that a Jewish person during this time period would have been eagerly awaiting, things like the restoration of the Davidic monarchy, things like the coming of the Messiah who will establish an earthly reign of peace from Jerusalem. And implied in all of that is the end of foreign rule, in this case particularly the Romans, the independence of Israel, its vindication among the nations, and the visitation of God upon the earth. So why on earth would they have expected these things? Because they were promised by God to the Jews throughout the Old Testament. And God makes good on his promises. And so as mainly Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the church doesn't often reflect on these aspects of Christ's coming. If we're being honest, most of us couldn't care less if Jesus reigned from Israel, London, New York, or Belgrade. If we're being honest, most of us are hyper-focused on God's involvement in this kingdom right here, right now. And if we look beyond that, we're focused on being with him in heaven. And very rarely do we consider any divine kingdom upon the physical earth one day in the future. But the Christmas story reminds us of what God really promised and what we ought to expect and get excited about in the future. Because God's faithfulness to his promises made to the Jews is also a blessing for everyone else. But why this distinction between the Jews and the rest of the world? Why should there be two names on God's gift list? Why can't it just be the world? Because the truth of the matter is that the whole world has always been God's ultimate objective. But in achieving this objective, God established a relationship with a particular people group through whom his mission would be accomplished. If you could, think in your mind of an hourglass. It's big on the top and it's big on the bottom, but in the middle, it's narrow. The top of the hourglass is very broad, and I want you to picture the top of the hourglass and think, That is the whole world. Now, God created the whole world, right? 
He's the benevolent creator and sustainer of all people. Not some people, not most people, not a specific group of people. Hey, he created everything. He's the creator and sustainer of all people. And he created all people to live in harmony with him. Perhaps our clearest picture of this is Adam and Eve reflecting the image of God in the Garden of Eden. A long time before Israel, a very long time before the church, and they were the first parents of all people, not just a particular group. But the reality is that humanity sinned. Humanity rebelled against God. Humanity stopped honoring him, started worshiping false gods, inanimate objects, and even themselves. Humanity was utterly lost. In fact, the Apostle Paul paints a vivid picture of this by threading together several Old Testament passages, which he writes in Romans 3. And he says this, Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's some strong language. And that is what happened as a result of the fall. That's the state of all people. The whole world that God had created for fellowship with him had fallen to this low state. Now, do you still have that hourglass in your mind? Again, at the top, it's broad. God is the God of all people. But then, all people rebelled against him. Again, all people rebelled against him. Now, before you get scared, Let's go to the end of the story so I can show you how it all works out well in the end. The bottom of the hourglass. What does it look like? It looks like the top. Again, it's broad. In the end, God is once again God of all people. In fact, we don't have to guess. We don't have to imagine this is the case. God makes it clear throughout Scripture, but we'll look specifically at one particular passage, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and it puts it this way. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And so there it is, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. God will be successful in reconciling all people or people from all nations, to himself. The bottom of the hourglass is broad. But what does the middle of the hourglass look like? What connects the top and bottom? What connects the beginning and the end? The narrow part. In our illustration of the hourglass, the narrow part is Israel. The narrow part is the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. Again, the whole world has always been God's ultimate objective. But in achieving this objective, God established a relationship with a particular people group through whom his mission would be accomplished. And God is not a God who comes and uses people for his own good and, and, and you know, at their expense. 
when God commits to a people group, when God commits to a person, when God commits to anybody, right, God is the good God we know him to be, right? And so in establishing his covenant with Israel, the covenant whereby he would eventually redeem the whole world, God made promises to Abraham and to his descendants, and you could be sure God would keep these promises. Here's just some of them. God promised the land of Israel. He promised to always be their God. Even salvation was first promised to the Jews to redeem them as a people, to redeem their land, to redeem them as a kingdom, to restore the line of King David, and to redeem them from their sins. These are all throughout the Old Testament. And God is a God who keeps his promises. So as we look at the angel Gabriel's message to Mary foretelling the birth of Jesus, we really shouldn't be surprised to see such directly Jewish attributes, things that are literal fulfillments to a literal people whom God had established relationship with and covenanted with. Again, in our text today, Luke 1, verses 26 and 27 say this, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And so even as our passage opens, we're reminded of our Jewish context. Specific Jewish people and a specific Jewish town in Israel are mentioned. However, the key to what Luke is trying to convey is found toward the end of what we just read. Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, I want to, you know, not sugarcoat this, not gloss over this. Let's, let's understand what we're talking about here. Remember that King David lived about a thousand years before these events, about a thousand years before the coming of Jesus. And a lot happens in a thousand years. We see through the scriptures that David had kids. His kids had kids. His grandkids had kids. His great-grandkids had kids. You get the point. And so at this time that we're looking at here, there were many descendants of David. Further, the descendants of David didn't go around introducing themselves as descendants of David. Hey, you know, I'm Joseph, descendant of David. Who are you? No. Luke is making a very particular point by including this detail here. This is not arbitrary. This was not an accident that it was included in the text. Luke is making a very particular point. And we'll see what the point he's making in just a few minutes. We continue on in our passage in verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now there's a lot going on here, much more than we have time to discover together this morning. However, I do want to highlight three important elements in what we've just read. The first is the significance of the name that would be given to this child. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it prophesy that the one who would come would be named Jesus. This is the first time in Scripture that his name is revealed, when the angel instructs Mary to name him Jesus. And that leads to another important observation concerning this name. 
The name was not up for discussion. God did not allow Mary and Joseph to name this child. In fact, God himself gave the name, and he did so for a reason. Jesus, or Joshua, Yeshua in Hebrew, means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the personal name of God, the name that when Moses asked God's name, this is the name that he gave. In fact, the Old Testament writers use God's personal name, Yahweh, over 6,800 times throughout the Old Testament. And so we don't see that as we look in our English translations because uh, they change the, they use the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, uh, and replace God's name in the Old Testament text. But it's there in the original Hebrew. So the second most, uh, so here's the thing, right? It means the Lord saves. And so in the, in, in the very giving of this name to this child, God is proclaiming what he's going to do through him. Yahweh saves. And so through this child, God will save. And so let's not miss, even the name that Jesus is given is given for a reason, as God foreshadows what he will do through Jesus. The second important element that we, uh, in the passage we just read is that this son will be the son of the Most High. This child who will be born to Mary will be the son of God. And we talked about this earlier, and what an amazing thing. This is the highlight for me of all Christmas, is to reflect on the fact that God, the second person of the Trinity, the son, took on human flesh. What an amazing thing. And of all the amazing things that Gabriel told Mary in this encounter that we've read about, I have to imagine that this is the one that blew her mind the most. The one that was the hardest for her to comprehend. The one that was so magnificent that her jaw must have hit the floor. So listen, we've had 2,000 years to reflect on Jesus as the Son of God, and we still have difficulty understanding the concepts we're talking about because they're transcendent, they're otherworldly, they're beyond our ken, they're mystery, they're amazing, and there's nothing else like it in all the world. How much harder for a first-century Jewish person who didn't yet have Jesus' teachings about himself or the New Testament to refer to? And even while the Old Testament included passages that seemed to speak of the deity of this messianic figure, for many Jews that was too magnificent to believe. And yet consistently, when we read Jewish literature from this time period that references the Messiah, it references the coming of the Messiah in conjunction with God visiting the earth. And the angel makes it clear, this one who will be born is the Son of God. God is literally visiting the earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In the past, people only saw God through an intermediary, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, the angel of the Lord. In Jesus, human beings could see God face to face. Jesus put God on display in a way in which God was never on display before humanity before. And the third important element is what we alluded to earlier. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, which would have been enough, but he's also the Son of a man, a particular man, his ancestor, King David. 
A thousand years before Jesus was born, God made a promise to King David. And here's what that promise is. This is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 16. He promised that his house and his kingdom will endure forever before God. David's throne will be established forever. That's an amazing promise. In fact, if you remember that passage, God, uh, David rather was in Jerusalem in his palace and he was looking at the tabernacle, which had been used for a long time at this point and had been through a lot. And he thought that God should have a much more magnificent house than he had himself. After all, everything he had was from the Lord. And so he wanted to build for God a house, a temple. And God turned the tables and said, no, I'm going to give you a house. And he made this promise that his dynasty would last forever. The problem is that the line of Davidic kings ended when the Jews were exiled to Babylon in 586 B.C. And then we see that they were under Babylonian rule. There was no king. Then they were under Persian rule. Then they were under Greek rule. Then they won their independence for a short while, but even then, a descendant of David did not rule the land during that time. And then they were under, the Ro under Roman rule. So by the time Gabriel, the angel, made this promise to Mary, it had been nearly 600 years since the descendant of David was on the throne. And during that 600 years, the Jews remembered God's promise that David's house and kingdom would endure forever. During that 600 years, God sent prophets among the people who foretold the restoration of the Davidic monarchy, a branch that would come from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. And now God was revealing that the son of David was coming, that he would reign, that God's promises would finally be fulfilled. I know what you're thinking. Thanks, Kevin. I came to the Christmas service today, and you spent the last 30 minutes talking about the Jewish people. What does any of this have to do with me? Well, I'd like to suggest just a few ways. And the first is this. God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. The coming of Jesus was not the start of something new, but the fulfillment of something long since promised. His coming wasn't even the fulfillment of one particular promise, but several promises that God made to humanity in general and Israel in particular throughout their history. For example, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, again, long before Israel, long before the church, God promised that Jesus would come to undo the results of the fall. And in Isaiah 53, God promised that his servant would die as a guilt offering, that he would be pierced for the transgressions of Israel, that he would be crushed for their iniquities, that his punishment would bring them peace. God doesn't forget his promises. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't lose interest. God is faithful, and he keeps his promises. And so as Christians, there are many promises that we also cling to, aren't there? For instance, he promises never to leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13.5. He promises to always be with us while we are here on mission for him, Matthew 28.20. He promises to comfort us in trials, 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. He promises to carry to completion the good work that he began in us, 
Philippians 1.6. And probably the most important one. No, I'm going to say yes, the most important promise. He promises us eternal life. John 3.16. There are many promises that we cling to. Well, guess what? We could trust in God that he will be faithful to his promises just as he was to the Jewish people. Here's the second point. Israel's blessings also mean blessing for us. Israel's blessings also mean blessing for us. So first, in case you missed it, what Gabriel promised, what he said would be accomplished in Jesus, uh, it's not exactly finished. And we'd be kidding ourselves to say that it has been. And yet, and yes, he made these things possible, right? The, 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 the reign of peace, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, these promises that he made. Jesus made these things possible by dying to redeem Israel and all who call on the name of the Lord. However, Jesus has not yet sat on David's throne. He's not yet ruled the world in peace from Israel. Look around you today. There's not peace on this earth yet. It's still to come. Again, God didn't forget. Gabriel didn't make a mistake. The work just isn't finished yet. As we saw a few weeks back in our study of Acts, Jesus himself mentioned as much. So after his death, after his resurrection, after the time he spent with his disciples, after that, just before he was going to ascend to the Father, we see this in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so now they've been with Jesus for over three years. He's died for their sins. He's risen from the dead. How amazing that was. He's continued to teach about the kingdom of God over a period of 40 days. And still, the apostles asked this question, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus didn't say, no, you fools, you completely missed the point. That's not going to happen. That's not what he says. Verse 7, he continues, he says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Fellas, it's not time, it's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know when these things are going to take place, but they will take place. It's going to happen. The kingdom will be restored to Israel, just as Gabriel said, just as God, as God had promised throughout history. The king will sit on his throne upon the earth, just not yet. Other things had to be done first to make that possible. Jesus died on the cross as an atonement for sin, so that Israel and the rest of the world can be reconciled to God, so that the broad bottom of the hourglass can become a reality. He commissioned his first followers, and what we just read, and all Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, for the past 2,000 years to share the gospel so that people can respond and be reconciled to God. And one day, at the appointed time, 
Jesus will come again. Now, we're not going to float on clouds playing harps for eternity. If that's the picture you had of heaven or eternity, that's not what it is. We're not going to become angels and float around the spiritual kingdom, uh, throne of God for all that forever. That's not, that's not what this is about. The Bible doesn't say that's going to happen. What does it say is going to happen? That, yeah, we're going to be with God when we die, but one day Jesus will return and we will live upon the earth with Jesus as king. He will sit on David's throne. He will rule the nations in peace. People from around the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down and worship the king. And while this has been the long-standing promise to Israel, we all benefit when Jesus reigns over the world. Words cannot express what a glorious day that will be for all of his faithful subjects, for all of his disciples, for all of his friends. What a glorious day that will be. Friends, God has a gift list. And on that list is the Jewish people who have received in part the promises that he made to them in sending the Messiah. And they will receive the rest when Jesus returns to sit upon David's throne and rule over the nations just as they have been promised throughout history. And friends, we are on that gift list as well because through them, through that narrow part of the hourglass, through what God has been doing in executing his salvific plan throughout history, we too will receive the blessings of God's promise. What a wonderful Christmas thing to think about. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful God.